Well, good morning. Glad to have you with us to be able to worship together here. And if you're watching with us online, if you have a Bible, go ahead and get it out. We're going to start a new uh, series here this week in the book of Jude. And so if you, if your fastest route to the book of Jude, if you've got a hard copy Bible in front of you is to go to the book of Revelation and then just flip your way back. It's the book right before Revelation. But if you flip in too big of chunks, because Jude's only a one pager, you'll likely miss it and end up somewhere in 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John. So if you can find either 1st John or Revelation, you're in the right area. Um, We just finished up talking about kind of who we are as a church, what it means to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, what that means that we're doing as uh, a church staff and leadership team in terms of trying to build disciples here at LCF. And the kind of the cornerstone of that is that we want to be people who are gospel-centered. And we said that that means that we will default to truth in all things, biblical, scriptural truth. And that that defines the way it is that we teach, um, the way it is that we handle scripture and preaching on Sunday mornings. And as I was thinking about that and thinking about this series in Jude, what kept coming to mind for me was 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. Jude might be, uh, I haven't like taken a poll or done a study here, but it might be the most overlooked book in the New Testament. If you were to kind of think your way through the last time you were trying to figure out what you were going to do next in your own Bible reading, or if you were to even think through your time as a part of a church, um, I don't think that Jude is what usually jumps to mind for your own scripture reading. I also don't think that Jude is something that you've probably heard like a series of sermons about, or even a single uh, sermon that was anchored in something out of the book of Jude. It's just not very common that we spend time looking at it. And I think the primary reason for that is because it's so short. Jude's the fifth shortest book in the New Testament. It's only 25 verses long, 461 words in the original Greek language. If you were to, to read it start to finish uh, in one setting, which we're actually going to do here in just a few minutes, it takes about four minutes to read through. But thinking about 2 Timothy 3.16, we shouldn't mistake brevity, length in the book of Jude, for a lack of importance in what the book has to say. Because it only fills one page, it's likely that most of us haven't interacted with it very much. That's unfortunate for a number of reasons. The biggest one being that there's something that God wants to say to his people about himself in the book of Jude. There's something that he intends to open our eyes to in terms of how he reveals himself to us. What the fullness of the wonder and majesty of the gospel is. How it is that we are designed to live in relationship with him. That's true of any book of scripture. It's true of the book of Jude. So we're going to spend five weeks here. Um, Five weeks, 25 verses. Jude is one of 21 epistles in the New Testament. Epistle just means letter. Of those 21 epistles, 13 are attributed to having been written by Paul. Three are attributed to John, two to Peter, 
one to James, one, the book of Hebrews, to an unknown author, and then there's one attributed to Jude. Most New Testament epistles follow a very similar structure, and it was a structure that any letter at this time period in the first century would have followed, whether that letter was Christian or not. So if you've got Jude open, you can just kind of look at it. There's a greeting. That greeting typically identifies the author, identifies the audience, and then offers a blessing of some sort. Then there's a main sort of body to the letter, and then there's uh, a conclusion. Most of the time, that conclusion is either like personally greeting some people who are receiving the letter, or there's a prayer or some sort of benediction that comes in that conclusion. But all New Testament epistles, regardless of their length, follow that same structure. So identifying the author. Well, the author of this is Jude. Jude, who would have been the brother of Jesus, which we'll talk about more in a few minutes. You'll notice that the letter isn't addressed or directed to a specific church like Romans or 1st or 2nd Corinthians. Instead, um, Jude is what we would call a general epistle. It was written more than likely to an area or a region, and it would have circulated in that area. James is more of a general epistle. Then there's a statement of intent, and that actually comes in verse 3. We'll spend next week talking specifically about verse 3, but if you just look at it, dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. The purpose of the book of Jude is for Jude's audience to be strengthened and encouraged and reminded that they need to contend for the faith. And we'll try to make this clear over all five weeks that we work with this book, but that contending for the faith is actually against those who would be sort of hiding or lurking within the church, but do not live according to the gospel. So, Who is Jude encouraging Christians to contend for the faith against? People that might have been sitting in church with them. 2020, when we look around kind of the Christian cultural landscape in America, cultural Christianity is a very prominent thing where there are people who just go to church because going to church is what you're supposed to do, or I grew up in the Bible Belt, and therefore church is just a thing I do on Sunday. That has had incredible ramifications within the life of the American church in terms of what is the, what is the truth of the gospel that's being proclaimed? What does that look like as it's lived out or not lived out? And how is it that the church today should contend for the true faith that was delivered to us against those sorts of influences. That's why I want to do Jude now. We'll talk specifics in the weeks to come, but we're handling this book at a time where there's a pandemic circulating in our nation and around the world, where there's an election looming, and as our society is seemingly drowning in disagreement, And the reality is that the church is not immune to any of those things. Those stressors and those tension points have impact within the life of any local congregation. And what they have done is I don't think that they have created 
issues within the American church so much as they have exposed issues that already existed within the American church because there are some within the church that we need to contend for the truth of the faith against. And so that's why I want to handle this now. I want to do so directly in the weeks to come. I also want to do so pastorally and gently, which is what we're going to see this morning. We're going to read this whole, this whole book, all 25 verses, and I'd like to do so kind of in an old school manner. So if you would stand up as we read the word of God. If you've got the book of Jude open in front of you, whether on a, uh, on a cellular device or in hard copy, go ahead and follow along with me. This is the word of the Lord through Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who are the called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander, and slander glorious ones. Yet when Michael, the archangel, was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's error for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts, as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things the ungodly sinners have said against them. These people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end time there will be scoffers, living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the Spirit. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. 
Let's pray together. God, thank you for this morning and for your word. Lord, there is much in Jude that uh, is difficult to understand on the surface. And so I pray over the coming weeks, God, that you would give us clarity. God, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the truth of your word here. God, that you would help us to discern how it is that we take something written a couple thousand years ago and see it as still relevant and applicable in our culture today. God, I pray that you would communicate truth from this spot over the course of the next five weeks, whether it's myself who stands up here or someone else. God, would what resounds in this sanctuary and through the screen to those watching online be the truth of your word and not the ramblings of a broken individual. God, I pray that we would be encouraged by what we read in the book of Jude, but also that we would be emboldened to do as Jude says, which is to contend for the faith of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would do so lovingly. I pray that we would do so humbly, but I also pray that we would be a church that does so firmly. God, would your spirit do that work in this congregation through the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. We're just going to do two verses this morning. Here is where we're headed. It's the, the main point, the big takeaway today. The called, loved, and kept people of God need an overflow of God's mercy, peace, and love as they contend for the truth of Christ. Let's just look at this introduction. Jude introduces himself in the first part of verse one. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, a brother of James. Notice what Jude doesn't do. He doesn't try to authenticate himself by saying that he's the brother of Jesus. Instead, he says he's the brother of James. That is the James who's a prominent figure in the book of Acts who led the church as it grew in Jerusalem. You could go back and look at that in Acts chapter 15 if you want to jot that down. Jude lists that name, James, as the means by which he sort of validates who he is and why it is that he should be able to author something like this. As if to say, hey, look, we all know who James is. Remember James from Jerusalem? I'm his brother. There are a couple places... um, that tell us that this James that Jude is referencing is the brother of Jesus. In Galatians 1.19, Paul says that James is the Lord's brother. Mark 6 verse 3 lists the brothers of Jesus as James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. What's interesting about all of the brothers of Jesus is that they went on to become very prominent, significant evangelists and leaders in the early church, but none of them came to faith until after Jesus' death and resurrection. None of Jesus' brothers were apostles, disciples. They came to faith later and then were very, very significant evangelists in, in the early church. So it leaves us with the question, why wouldn't Jude just say that he was Jude, the brother of Jesus, or the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ? Instead, back up a little bit. He introduces himself not as the brother of Jesus, but as a servant of Jesus Christ. He chose a different distinction for himself. The word servant there is the Greek word doulos, literally means slave or bond servant. That word comes with a lot of historical and cultural baggage for Americans. And so I'm going to quote at length from an author and a speaker. Her name is Jackie Hill Perry. 
She has a fantastic study. It's like seven sessions long through the book of Jude. And she says this about that particular word. She says the definition of doulos or slave is, quote, a person who is legally owned by someone else and whose entire livelihood and purpose was determined by their master. The word slave brings to mind pictures of human beings made in the image of God being taken captive to do the will of evil men and women. The word is used differently here. Jude was not a slave to men, but God, meaning Jude listened to, followed, obeyed, received purpose purpose from, and honored God. Jude had no intention of living for anything other than the will of God. Jude was calling himself servant, not only as a marker of his humility and a sense of his purpose, but also because it would have been understood by his listeners as a title of honor. Jude was among the likes of men and women that God had chosen to use to do great things. Being a slave of Christ had honor, not because of Jude, but, the one, but because of the one who Jude served. Rather than identifying himself primarily through his biological relationship beside Jesus of Nazareth, Jude chooses to identify himself instead by his humble, submissive relationship underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That idea of Jesus' lordship is going to be significant throughout the book of Jude. You'll see at the end of verse four there that Jude refers to Jesus Christ as our only master and Lord. As we read through the entirety of the book of Jude, if as you were just kind of listening, maybe you picked up on the fact that one of the ways that Jude is going to mark out who these sort of lurking false um, followers of Jesus in the church are is that they reject the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's one of the ways that you can tell that they're not a believer. So that idea of Jesus's lordship, him being master, is significant, not just in Jude's own identification of himself, but in how he's going to help the church contend for the faith within its own body. David Helm, a Um, commentator on the book of Jude says this, the people closest to Jesus are happy to call themselves servants. The people closest to Jesus are happy to call themselves servants. At times, we are all tempted toward living as though we want all the benefits of our relationship with Jesus while trying to get out from under all the responsibilities of our relationship with Jesus. Let me say that again. There are times that all of us want to take hold of and enjoy the benefits of living in relationship with Jesus while simultaneously wanting to try to get ourselves out from under any sort of responsibility or obligation that comes as a result of our relationship with Jesus. But we cannot have one without the other. If we're going to live gospel-centered lives, lives that keep the truth of the gospel at the front of all things, then we cannot help but look at the cross, see all that was accomplished for us there, and simultaneously be humbled and compelled to increasingly give ourselves to the man upon that cross. In fact, you get the benefits of relationship to Jesus Christ only by willfully and joyfully submitting yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You cannot have one without the other. If we are to be devoted followers of Jesus Christ, we must be happy to call ourselves servants. Jude, the very brother of Jesus, understood that reality to the point where he was happy to identify himself primarily as a servant. 
And we would do well to look long and hard into our own hearts and to learn not only to find, but to savor the joy and the honor of being known primarily as a servant of Jesus. Sisters and brothers, this may be the most important takeaway for you this morning. If you don't understand, embrace, and find joy in the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life, it is likely that you do not understand relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot have the relationship without Christ's lordship. And it doesn't mean that we won't wrestle in our flesh and in our sin against what Jesus has commanded us to do, against what the Lord has said is right and good for his people. But it does mean that in our wrestling, there's a willingness to submit. That even though we might fight and struggle and wrestle against our own sin and the temptations that exist in our lives, an overriding reality for the life of a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is that we're submissive to the Lord. We recognize his lordship and are willing to humble ourselves and submit to it. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. There's our author. Now he addresses his audience. To those who are the called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. All three verbs here, called, loved, kept. They're all passive. They're something that happened to us, not something we do for ourselves. We're just going to deal with each one of them one at a time. The first one is called. Jude, servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are the called. What we are talking about here is not the idea of calling in terms of like a subjective sort of God called, like for me personally, God called me into ministry, or for you, God called you to a certain career or to a certain thing in life. What's being talked about here is the reality that God effectually called his people into relationship with him. My goal is not to get bogged down in a debate or a discussion about election or predestination this morning. At the same time, we cannot shy away from the words that scripture says here and in other places. So when we're talking about, or when Jude is talking about those who are the called, we mean this, that the call of God which brings his people into faith, is always effectual. It always accomplishes what it sets out to do. Every person that God calls comes to faith. In this respect, God initiates, we respond. He pursues, and we stop running. Let me give an illustration. I want you to picture sitting at home and there's someone at the front door. Jesus is not standing outside of your front door with his hands in his pockets, hoping that at some point you happen to walk by, notice that someone's there, take interest in them, and then open up the door and let them into the house. Jesus is not doing that. Jesus is also not knocking on the front door, hoping that you answer like you would maybe answer if someone was going door to door selling you new windows or knives or a home security system or something like that. Jesus isn't ringing the doorbell and hoping that when you peek at the ring camera on your cell phone, you find him interesting enough to go out and open the door for him to come inside. Instead, Jesus is knocking on the door, letting you know that he's there, 
and then he's walking inside simultaneously. And at that very moment, you also absolutely want him to be there. And it just happens all at once. That is the effectual call of the Lord, drawing a person into relationship. There are a lot of places where you could go and hear someone kind of talk as though Jesus were just like out in your driveway, hoping that maybe at some point you think to yourself, in all of your sin and in all of your brokenness, you think to yourself, you know what? I'm so sinful and broken, I should go see if there's a Savior lurking around somewhere. Scripture makes it very clear that there is a pursuit and a call that happens on the part of the Lord. And that when that call happens, it always works. And those who are called absolutely come to faith. I'll leave this piece here. Ask yourself honestly, knowing all of your brokenness, all of your flesh, all of the ways that evil lurks in the recesses and the depths of your own heart and your own mind, if God had not called you, would you have honestly chosen him? I'll speak for myself. I'm far too evil to have chosen God, and yet the good news of the gospel is that he is far too good to have been daunted by my evil. We are the called. Next, loved. Loved by God the Father is what it says. God delights in his people because he delights in his son. God's called are lavished by a very particular and special kind of love. This probably needs the least explanation here out of this verse. We know what it is to love, and we know what it is to glory in the truth that God loves us. What I want to make clear here, though, is that there's a particular kind of love that God has for his people, the called. God loves all people. Each and every person, is our created being, is loved by God. The literal sense of the word here, though, is that God takes pleasure in or delights in his people. That there's a special, particular kind of love as God delights in his called people. If life has you feeling heavy and downtrodden this morning, if the enemy has your or your flesh have you thinking that you're a failure or some sort of bad Christian, take heart because right now and for all of eternity, God is literally delighting in you, taking pleasure in you. Why? Because he takes pleasure in the perfection of his son. And that is where you are hidden, wrapped in his perfect holiness, surrounded by his perfect righteousness, covered by his holy blood. And as the father delights in the son, if you're hidden in the son, he delights in you. Loved by God the father and then kept for Jesus Christ. The people that God has called are being kept for the day that he takes them home. I searched for a better way to say that. I realize takes, takes them home sounds incredibly like churchy. Um, but that's literally what will happen one day. This world is not our home. Someday, God will either, because you pass away and your time here on earth is done, or he comes back and takes his people home to their actual heavenly home. This could be translated here, kept by Jesus Christ or kept 
before Jesus Christ. Depending on what translation you have, it could say either one. The gist is the same because the one who is doing the keeping is also the one that we're being kept for. Notice the tense. It's past. It's already done. When God called you, you were already kept. When God set his particular love upon you, you were already kept. That doesn't mean we can be lax because we fall under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And Jude is later going to say that we should expend effort in order to keep ourselves in the love of Christ. We'll talk about how those two things work together when we get to that later. But know this, if you have been saved by God's grace, if you've been called into his family, if his particular love has been set upon you, then there is no doubt you are right now, you have always been, and you will for eternity be kept for the Lord Jesus Christ. He will eternally delight in and take pleasure in those who are his own. Just jot down, if you want, Romans 8.30. There's a string of words there where Paul addresses those who were predestined, who were also called, who were also justified, who were also glorified. And it's that chain takes place all at once. Glorified, kept for him. The people of God are a called, loved, and kept people. God is eternal. He's infinite. He's timeless. And thus, he is like outside of time. And yet, he's chosen to work within the confines of time as he created it all the way back at the creation of all things. Right now, though, for God, who is outside of time, it's as though he's like looking at creation and the calling of Abraham and like the rescue of the Israelites out of Egypt and all the kings of Israel and the coming of Jesus Christ and your birth and the day that he returns. And it's like all one thing, which is staggering and mind-blowing, but he's outside of time. Things aren't, aren't linear for him like they are for us. That's why you could be both called and kept at the same time. You could be both loved and kept, and they happened all at once. Melody and I were doing um, a, a counseling appointment via Zoom with a counselor that we talked to fairly regularly. We were talking about the fact that we were selling our house, and she was just asking us how things were going, and we were saying we were kind of stressed, like we had purchased a new house, but we needed to do all this stuff to get our current house ready to sell. And she just kind of passively said, as we're talking about being a little bit stressed by that, isn't it nice to know that in God's eyes, the house is already sold? And I thought, whoa, yes. That's incredibly nice to know. Isn't it nice to know, brother and sister in Christ, you're already kept. When you were called, you were kept. When you were loved, you were kept. When you were kept, you were called. When you were kept, you were loved. And it's all just happening all at one time. And in a moment in your life, Jesus knocked on the door, let himself in, and you were thrilled that he was there. And all of those things were true. But they've all been true in eternity past, and they'll all be true all the way into eternity future. And so Jude says, I'm Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, and I'm writing to this rock-solid, called, loved, kept body of Christ. And you're going to need to contend against some stuff. But your eternity is not at risk. That's why he begins the way that he does. Then he offers a blessing in verse 2. 
May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Jude knows that if we are to contend well with false teachings about who Jesus is, it's going to require an overflow of mercy, peace, and love. And so he prays for that. It's counterintuitive. What we think we would need in order to stand against, let's say, false teachings or things that distort the gospel is like a bold, argumentative, aggressive stance. Jude prays that those who understand they are called, loved, and kept would instead overflow with mercy. Mercy is not getting what we justly deserve. Having been called, loved, and kept, we are a people who have received mercy. Jude prays that his readers would have that multiplied within themselves. Not just that you would understand mercy, but that you would be overwhelmed by it. Just drowning in the greatness of the mercy of God, swamped by it, entirely submerged in it, and that that would create peace. That when there's a full understanding of the depths of God's mercy, and that washes over us, that the result would be peace. He doesn't want just a little peace, though. He wants it multiplied to you. He wants an overwhelming amount of it. A peace that results from understanding where we stand with God. A peace that sees that the largest issue within my heart and your heart and the life of any other saved human being has ultimately been settled. Thus it permeates everything else. It doesn't mean we don't have moments where we're a little bit anxious, but it means, like Philippians says, we turn to the Lord in prayer and are met with a peace that surpasses all understanding. It means that in comparison with the rest of humanity, God's people called, loved, and kept radiate peace. You tell me what our world needs now. Christians that seem to match the angst, anxiety, anger, and argumentative nature of our society as a whole, or a church who radiates a multiplying sense of peace. And who walk in love. The word here is agape. That's the kind of love that is full and complete, the kind of love that is perfect love that God has for all of humanity. That love, Jude says, would it be multiplied within you? Would you understand it, cherish it, reflect it in increasing measure? Would you be changed by it and live out of it? Would it so infect the deepest part of your being that it heals what's broken, comforts what's hurting, fills what is lacking, and then bursts through every pore of your body? Would that be multiplied to you? Remember, the point of this letter is to contend for the faith against pretenders lurking within the church. Though we need to speak truthfully and forcefully about the truth of the gospel, to not do so with mercy or to not do so from a place of peace and with a motivation of Christ-like love is to miss the point. We fall under the lordship of a merciful, peace-giving, loving Savior. We are the called, loved, and kept people of God. And if we are to contend with those in the church who are not actually of the church, you know what they most need? The gospel. Dripping with mercy, peace, and love from a people who stand confidently as those who are called and kept and loved. They need to understand what it means to be called, loved, and kept. Do they need an explanation of the gospel and a firm defense of its truth? Absolutely. And Jude isn't going to pull any punches there as we go forward. But what they ultimately need is for the gospel to exude from people who have it just shoved into every little crevice of their heart. 
the called, loved, and kept people of God need an overflow of God's mercy, peace, and love as they contend for the truth of Christ. Jude opens his letter by saying, to the people who are called, loved, and kept, would you overflow with mercy, peace, and love as you contend for the truth of the faith of Christ? My prayer for us, not just over the next five weeks as we look at the book of Jude, but as a church body, would we, is that we would be a people who humbly understand the joy that it is to have been called into relationship with Jesus Christ, loved by him with a particular kind of love in which he delights in us, kept by him for all of eternity. And that out of that place, we would overflow with mercy, peace, and love, even as we stand against that which is either counter to the gospel or that which portrays the gospel in a false light. Because what people ultimately need is the gospel. And they need to hear it from a people who exude a kind of peace and mercy and love that can only be found because we understand who we are in Jesus, called, loved, and kept. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and sing together. God, we praise you because we were bought by you at such unbelievable price. God, that you would delight in your people with this special, unmerited kind of love that would necessitate the giving of your son on the cross. God, we praise you for that. God, we praise you that your mercy to us is greater than anything else that we could ever grab onto in all of the world, in all of our lives. It's stronger than darkness. It's new every morning. God, we praise you for that. Lord, would we be a people who stand confidently in our relationship with you, not because of anything that we have done, but because we see the glory and the greatness of what you have done in calling us, in loving us, in keeping us. And as we stand there, would we just overflow with mercy and peace and love? God, would your spirit cause that to just burst inside of us? And would that mercy and that peace and that love be what compels us to look to those who do not know you, whether seated inside this church week in and week out or out in the world where we interact with people, God? Would that mercy and peace and love be what compels us to look them into the eyes and speak to them of the beauty of the gospel? in all of its truth and in all of its majesty and in all of its beauty. God, would your Holy Spirit, like Jude prays, multiply that within us. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Um, miracle of all miracles, I got done early today. How about that? Yeah, give me I have the applause. I feel like that's worth it. Um, let's do this. Let's actually close. Let's just, let's sing that final verse of his mercy is more in that chorus one more time. And then when we're done with that, we can, we can dismiss.